0: Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 728th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Welcome, welcome, everybody. Greg Peterson coming to you from Urban Farm U, and I'm here this evening with Bill McDorman. Hello, Bill. Hello, Greg, and hello, everyone, and thank you for coming yeah absolutely thanks for being here as many we are all about seed saving and helping everyone everywhere learn about the environmental social cultural and community benefits of the ancient tradition of seed saving tonight we're going to give you an overview of how to save some basic seeds and how to plan your garden for seed saving no you don't need acres of land Pollination bags or combines. Some simple concepts will help you plan for the next steps in your seed saving adventure. Tonight we're talking about the planning. impact of seeds and planning.
1: Planning for it. Go. I thought it was a good time for North American gardeners anyway to think about it, right? A little bit, and it's going to be an interesting evening. I'm going to try to tune my comments so that the regulars that are showing up, and I see many of you are, and thank you for your unwavering support. It really makes us feel good. You may hear some of the things I've said before. And the introduction that Greg just read is for sure written for new people that are just trying to figure out what this is all about. More and more people are coming and we need more and more. And we have a lot more to go. I know at the Seed Library Summit, a week ago, we had a sign up for the Million Seat Saver campaign. Really, and We have a couple of thousand people signed up now. And we started that about, I don't know, six or eight years ago. And the idea is that someday instead of marching, millions marching against Monsanto, those of us that don't like po- the policies that are coming down around seats in this country, instead of marching against, we would march for something someday. that There would be a Million Seat Savers March. Someday, and there are maybe a hundred million, hundred and fifty million gardens, if you count little and small landscapes and backyards. It's the number two, number one, tied for number one, maybe number two outdoor hobby in America.
0: Bird watching is number one, right? Bird watching, right? That just blows me away. Yeah. It's
1: amazing. But, and then almost all the bird watchers I know, you know, have gardens. And and if we've got 150 million people and we only have a few thousand signed up for our campaign, we have a long ways to go. go. And so that's why we'll have comments with every podcast we do for the beginners. We've got to all inspire and take care of these people that just have a little flicker of wanting to understand what we're all about and and get in on some of the
0: magic. And so that's where I'll start tonight because it is magical, yeah. I want to do a plug here real quick. This coming up this Saturday, February 25th, we have our Seed Up Saturday event. And so if you like what we're doing tonight, we got three hours of classes coming up Saturday. Maybe go to seedupsaturday.org. If you're listening to it after the fact, go there sign up and you'll get the replay. Yeah, that's really, it's tuned to do that.
1: That's a, that's our national outreach a couple of times a year. Yep. To try to streamline the process and get people excited about what's going on. Give them a way to get seeds they can save and inspire them to want to save them. And yep. then give them some technical knowledge so that at least they don't trip up when they first get started. Gardening gets its force from your specific backyard because it's different than every other place in the world to grow things. And you'll see things and learn things that none of us will even know about. But there are some patterns and some repeating principles that may apply and may help you. And so that's why you should ask questions. See if any of that will apply.
0: Cool, so go.
1: But the number one thing, and I think my wife, Belle, wrote this introduction for us. We have been washbrained. It amazes me how we've all been brought up in, in an industrial agricultural system. And we've got these deeply embedded ideas about our food system and where our food comes from. And even in our gardens and even how we're supposed to garden. And they revolve around things that like you've got to buy new seeds every year.
0: Which seeds is, yeah. die. Seeds die or expire. I guess that's the thing. Expire
1: on the packet, but they don't die. And you don't, that couldn't be further from the truth that you have to buy your seeds every year. And most American gardeners will, oh, I'm going to do my first garden. And what they'll do is go out away from their property on a flat area and they'll do a square and they'll put a fence around it and that'll be their garden. They'll put a garden gate or whatever and that'll be their garden. That just happens to be an unfortunate copy of large scale industrial agriculture that has to have large square flat fields in order for them to make money. But gardens can come in close to your home and be broken up and be cared for around trees. And you can just be so creative. You don't have to garden out in a big square. That's just another one of those industrial ideas that have come in. And now that we're all starting to experiment and grow some of our own heritage and ancient grain, the first idea that pops into people's heads, oh, I need a combine. I'm going (laughs) to need equipment to do it. Nothing hand sickle maybe, costs about the same as your trowel. It's really a bunch of simple tools, maybe a screen, a fan to help winnow them. But most of this kind of food growing, what we call gardening, has been done for millennium Millennium. (laughs) months. (laughs) <laughs> is that plural and we've been done for a long, long time on small scale. And, yeah. and so it's up to us to rediscover our own love and connection with that. And that's where all the fun is actually. Cool. Yeah.
0: So well, I have this one flat place on my property.
1: Yeah. And, and so you're going to take advantage of it.
0: And I'm not saying I, don't do that. Yeah. I'm going to take advantage of it and I'm going to plant. I called you the other day and it's like, I said, Bill, I want to plant grains. And you said, put a one seed every linear foot, right? That's it. So I'm going to take that platform. It's about, you no know, 1500 square feet, and I'm going to divide it up and put seeds in and we'll see what happens.
1: That, that's one of the other things that Ellie Brigosa discovered. And that's where I first read about it. She is a grainiac that lives In the Northeast and uh, her extensive experimentation, especially with Sare grants and keeping careful data and notes, they found that the older heritage and ancient grains actually need more space. They actually produce more grain if you plant them a foot apart.
0: Oh, interesting.
1: The other grains, in order to maximize yield, um, have been genetically designed to grow really close together so they can get more heads. But those plants don't have roots. They don't, they hardly have leaves. Those plants are so efficient. They put all their energy into just producing a head. It's been a miracle at how much they've increased yields. The problem is you've got to keep the water, the fertilizer and bug and pest control and fungus control perfect with those things or they just won't make it. And so our ancient inheritance heritage grains are deep-rooted. If a drought comes, many of them are drought-tolerant. And if you let one seed have space, it'll grow up, the tillers, and it'll grow up into this huge, big bunch-like plant and produce many of its own heads. And they're just beautiful, most of them. Nice. So anyway, that's another one of those industrial ideas. Oh, we've got to plant everything close together and make it look like those amber waves of grain that we see on commercials. And that's not what we're talking about either. And so it's been really fun to come down through all of these kinds of things for individual seed saving. So what I would say about that, you want to plan to save seeds. The most important thing you need to do is to plan to save seeds you've got to change your own It's right. what well, you talk about a lot greg right
0: yeah and there's a piece to that like with carrots yeah. you actually have to let them go to seed to flower and seed right so you have to leave some in so it is a, sh- a mind shift in how you think about this because some of the things you right. have to let go like the things what's ironic
1: about it is that you're letting go you're not planning more work. It's like you're just letting your garden be messy in many respects. Let it go to seed. So it's a little bit different. <laughs> but I was thinking that one of your famous quotes is that the most compacted soil we have in our gardens is in between our two ears, that we just got to <laughs> loosen up a little right? and be more observant and plan on there being seeds. Learn how to look for them. Every flowering plant produces seeds. So even if you mm-hmm. don't know what they look like that first year in, it's just a big treasure hunt. It's a big adventure. Yeah. And of course, there's lots written and lots of pictures and lots of literature out there about it. But don't let that overwhelm you. Keep it simple. The, some of the best seed savers that I know got started the same way. They, On just, accident? they started planning to save seeds from one crop that they really love. Something they really are in love with. They're gonna grow every year for the rest of their life. Maybe it was from grandma's tomatoes, who knows? It it runs the gamut. But just set yourself about one thing and keep it simple and have fun with it and make it an adventure. And that's
0: really the best planning you can do to save seeds in a garden. Elise is throwing us seed viability charts in the Um, Q&A in the chat. So we could just start there. I
1: routinely got 90% germ on tomato seeds that were 10 years old, which blows the doors off of 90% after 10 years. They're dying, but they're dying pretty slowly. And who knows how long they'll last. So, you know,
0: always try them. You said this many times, and that is that if you get 1%, you got 1%, you got something growing.
1: Well, and saving those seeds and you've reproduced the whole generation. So if there's characteristics or an old heirloom with a story, priceless, or something that may have spiritual connotations for other cultures, it's yeah. really important stuff. So yeah, never just say, "Oh, they're old; they probably won't grow." I never say that anymore, and I'm not doing that out of romantic doubts. Twenty-eight years running a seed company, over and over, the seeds worked. When nothing else worked, the insurance company didn't work. The UPS didn't work that day or the banks. Sometimes the internet would go, nothing would work. But the seeds all oh, seemed to come through and surprise me at how well they
0: worked. And so nice. that's why I'm such a fan, I think. There we go. So you are going to give us some varieties to start with. If you'll hear words like
1: heirloom seed, non-hybrid seeds, open pollinated seeds, Those are, that's a designation for plants that you don't really have to worry about cross-pollination, okay? So that's a big, that's a myth. Oh, no, I can't save seeds from my stuff because bees might fly in from from my neighbor's squash and bring their pollen over, and then I don't know what I have. It won't breed true. I've got a mess on my hands. There's a whole handful of vegetables that people love that we all have in our gardens that you just don't have to really worry about that. It can always happen. Never say never with biology. But generally, they produce just what the mothers and fathers in your garden produce. And so you can be relatively assured you're going to get the same kind of crop. So that's peas and beans, lettuce, tomatoes, and peppers. Okay, those are five five of them. And you know, what's wrong with that? Tomatoes are the gateway drug to gardening anyway. So that's 80% of the gardens in America have,
0: have tomatoes growing them. Oh my God. You know what, Bill? So we arrived here last April And I went to this huge plant sale at one of the, at a, something the size of, twice the size of a gymnasium. And I was walking through it in April here in North Carolina. And when we go to buy tomatoes in Phoenix, we get five or six or seven varieties. There was one booth that had 50 different varieties of tomatoes Mm -hmm. that they'd started up. That's just mind blowing. Yeah. Did you know that there's more diversity?
1: what we would call the vegetable crops in the Appalachian from yep. the, where you are all the way up than any other area of the United States. There's more concentration of more varieties. So mm-hmm. yeah, you just won the lottery.
0: <laughs> That's part of the reason we moved here was because yeah. of that diversity. It's amazing here. Right. So why are those five varieties easier? Because you,
1: again, just save seeds from them. They're annuals. they all produce seeds. You can see the peas are the seeds. The beans are the seeds, right? Just let them dry out. That's pretty easy. If you, we've all experienced our lettuce going to seed or bolting, right? So instead of running out and going, oh my God, my lettuce bolted, it's going to be bitter. Go, all right, my lettuce seeds coming on and you can get enough seeds on one lettuce plant to last the rest of your gardening days, it's tremendously productive. They'll have little yellow flowers, and then they'll turn into dandelion puffs and uh, and the seed packs at the top. Mm. And you know what? i have become a pretty good lettuce um, seed saver. Yep. If I do save myself, and I'm and I'm adapting lettuces to the desert here in central Arizona. Nice. And and I never bring any seeds in anymore at all i just shake when those puffs are around Yep, and then cover i live if you're in a cold country you would have to mulch otherwise the cold might get them and it won't just be the cold it would be if sub-zero temperatures without any snow cover is probably the most destructive because
0: uh, they they dehydrate
1: they de- it freeze dries them it's, it's amazing how that is destructive, but for me, and then the next year, all of this lettuce comes up. And so I've gone to the Joseph Lofthouse grexing side of things where I'm just letting them all mix. I plant salad. Actually, it plants itself salad, and I harvest salad. And I and year after year, different ones come up, and those are the ones that are most adapted to my conditions and just go, yeah, it's they're the winners, and so through this simple process on getting back, you know, what we, everybody who gardened in plus 10,000 years had, which was an adapted diversity in their own yards. And that's what yeah. we need, I would argue. Yeah, and then
0: tomatoes and peppers. Hold yeah, on. Go ahead. Hold on to the lovest thing. Before I left Phoenix, I used oh. to take the dog for a walk in the neighborhood. And in the winter, might have been last winter or the winter before, I walked across the street in one house down, and there was a lettuce plant coming up in the neighbor's lawn. Now you're now we're talking. <laughs> right? That's is that was le- that is that legal? <laughs> yeah, that's one of the things that I did at the urban farm for 32 years is I planted open pollinated seeds. Those are non generally non-hybrids, and I just let everything go to seed and There were dozens of different things that would come up year after year at the urban farm that would just be there. There was nothing for me to do except go harvest it, which is really cool. And lettuce was one of them. So this, if
1: you're not familiar with it, this is tipping over into a concept called food forest that was made very popular through permaculture, Bill Mollison, David Holmgren, And so that's why there's this underlying thing that Greg and I are both trying to create food for us wherever we go so that they'll take care of it. And in a sense, the underlying idea is to be observant enough about nature and understand just enough to let it be abundant around you. Many of our ideas, especially as I've been talking about the gardening, industrial, agricultural ideas, Mm -hmm. the opposite of that, they are to create crops that are predictable with high yields so that they can maximize profits and we the united states has been among the world's best at doing that however it's questionable yeah about how much that'll continue i just read greg that china and russia produce 50 percent of the world's three big fertilizers and and meeting to figure out how to use that in their geopolitical strategies we'll call them coming up Oh, yeah. And so there's this real, uneasiness. I read this through the businesses, there's this real uneasiness in the agricultural world, especially in Africa and other countries that are totally dependent. They have millions of people and they've set up these agricultures that depend on the phosphorus, the potassium, and, the, and they can be found other places. But right now, we've allowed them to become the world's suppliers. And it's going to be really interesting, the discussions that come up. So my answer. Figure out how to get your own food source wherever you are. Get them in your communities. Get them in your own backyards. Amen. That's easier that way.
0: You don't have right? to watch the news then, right? What else about the seed saving? Uh, Those are all selfers. The five that you mentioned are selfers, aren't
1: they? uh, Tomatoes and peppers. Peppers, just if you can let it ripen on the plant as long as you can, that's better. If you're in an area where it's not real hot and dry every day, take a knife and make a slit in the pepper, a couple of them, so that they open up a little and there's air in there. Many of us that have been trying to save pepper seeds and we leave the pepper on there till the end, you open it up and it's all gray with a mold, mold. a fungus oh, inside, right? So you can minimize that if you'll just make little slices in it and let some air in. But you can, uh, lots of times I've seen people take even green peppers and open them up and let the seeds dry and they've worked. Don't get as high as germ, maybe not as quite as vital, but mm-hmm. works. And so you can even do that. And then tomatoes we use a wet method to, to harvest those. So those are the five sulfers that every gardener should save from. Beans. The, yeah.
0: Go peas, ahead. Yeah. Beans, peas, peppers, tomatoes and lettuce.
1: That's it. All right, now, I was listening. I just had this mind-blowing revelation a couple of years ago when I started to getting into heritage and ancient grains. Guess what? We grains grains are, are grass. Right.
0: They are grass but Wheat and barley are open pollinated. Tim wants to know how do you maintain fertility when regrowing the same crop self-reseeding in the same place every year? I have my answer to that. And that is, you're not growing this exact same crop in the exact same place. You're growing 10 or 20 or 50 different crops in an area and they reseed wherever they reseed. And what I used to do at the urban farm every year or every two years is I'd put down a couple of inches of compost on top and grow organically. The more organically you grow, the healthier the soil is going to be, and that healthy soil is of utmost important to have the plants thrive. Because the healthier the soil is, the healthier the plant is, and the healthier the plant is, the healthier the food coming off of it is. So, yeah,
1: I agree. To- I agree totally. And the, if you're new to gardening, John Jevons' book, How to Grow More Vegetables, it's oh, yes. a really great chapter on compost to get you to understand what we're talking about, how we're returning fertility to the soil each year. In fact, he says if you've got, a, if you're trying to do a food forest, you should be growing grain on 70% of it. Yep. Why? Because you need that gr- straw f- to make your compost that you're going to put on the 30% where you're growing your vegetables. And what I've noticed about made lettuce is it's creeping. You know, yep. they're volunteers. Volunteers are always better. And there seems to be this embedded oh, yeah. knowledge that they come up where their conditions are going to be best. It's just amazing. And so I can, I'm just telling you here in Cornville, that's I put the compost on. I do add some minerals. We, here we get, can get as you might.
0: As you might, yeah.
1: Yeah, which is a pulverized rock mineral uh. product from a hot spring somewhere in the Southwest. And you can buy, so you're, we're putting the minerals back in, we're putting the organic matter back in, and then it
0: never had a problem. So you started saying that grain is open pollinated. They are not hybrids, and they're
1: largely self pollinating. So the wheat and barley, especially those are the two largest grain, and rice. You just save seeds. I've got a picture we show in our grain schools of ten thousand varieties of rice being grown at the bread lab in Washington in the Skagit Valley. And somebody asked us, well, "What about crossing?" <laughs> Steve Jones told me we didn't find any crossing. There's ten thousand varieties all being grown in these little plots, all right next wow. to each other. So it's another one of those easy ones. It's really
0: easy to save seeds from ancient grains. Where do we get rice seeds at? Because it's not the same Mm. as rice in the grocery store. That's processed rice. Where do we get rice seeds at to grow rice?
1: I have 70 varieties right here (laughs) of dry land rice. It's been part of our Heritage Grain Trials Project is to find out which dry land rices. And these are ones you don't need a patty. They'll grow like next year your wheat and your barley. They're a dryland grain. And, and we're trying to find out which varieties of those will work best in, in the country. So if you want to get involved in that and want access to them, I'm not sure. I, in the next few weeks, I will have rices on the cornvilleseed.com. Okay. That's where I make things available. And I asked for a donation to cover shipping. And then, and I also asked that you return twice as many seeds as you get Ah. back to us. And then we send them out to other people. And we've been doing that for six years. And we we just came through this change. We're no longer with the Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance, but we're now forming our own Heritage Grain Alliance. And so we're trying to keep the program. So if you're looking for something, you can email me, bill at cornvilleseed.com. And I'll try to find it for you. And stay tuned for some really exciting things because some of the ancient and heritage grain growers that you know, the real hobbyists, the guys that have gotten into this real deep over the last decade or more, they're way ahead of us. They're at least me, John Shirk. I'm thinking of. In the end, he said, for the amount of time and energy I spend growing grains now, I'm in in my yard in Indiana. I think the rices are the thing we should be growing. You get more really. Food- It's easier to handle and it just takes less energy to plant and manage. And so that's what we should be looking at if we want to grow our own food. And I love rice. In fact, the other day, Greg, I fresh ground rice and made my own rice noodles, which I really with my pasta machine. I'd never done that before. Yeah, unbelievable. Yeah, like we're breaking all sorts of barriers now. I've been making pasta and I love that. Fresh ground grains have more volatile oils because you're just breaking the shell. Yep. And when it's the moment that shell is broken, the oils start to volatize and that's nutrition and flavor. So what we're learning, the fresh flour movement, we call it, you grind your grains just before you eat them. So I ground this rice and I've got a pasta machine and I made my own rice noodles and it was like wow. so much fun. Yeah. Yeah, that's, yeah, we're rocking it now.
0: How cool is that? All right. Les says, my raised bed. Off the ground seeds are not doing well in Scottsdale. Arugula lettuces over the month of December and January. Okay, Les, we need a little more information than that. So it's a raised bed, but it's off the ground. So the the cold air could get underneath it and all the way around, I'm guessing. And when you say seeds aren't doing well, what does that mean? Are they not sprouting? Let's tell them, Bill, how to do a seed germination test. Because if the seeds aren't sprouting less, you can do this really easily.
1: Let me just tell a little story first. Okay. Seeds, we know, can last for hundreds of years yep. in their dormant phase. So what triggers them to come back to, to life? Two things. Warmth. They have to be warm enough. And Moisture. They have to be moist, and they start mm-hmm. absorbing moisture, and that releases enzymes, and this whole magical thing starts to happen. First thing that happens in most new seeds is a little radical, we call it. It's the root going to become the root. It's a radical, and it comes out of the seed, turns around, and goes down into the ground. They call that gravitropism. It knows which way to go. doesn't matter where oh, wow. it comes out. goes down into the ground, and it starts then taking in moisture and nutrients, okay? From the time that seed gets moist first and those enzymes start to fire until that little radical gets in the ground, if it dries out, it's dead. That's 99% of the reason why seeds don't germinate for people in their gardens. Why no seed company will guarantee their seeds will germinate. It's because the seeds are great. They're starting the process almost. And we test for that. And I can teach you how to test for that.
0: We're going to talk about that in a minute.
1: But most of the problem comes in that. So that's what I would say is that for carrots, especially, I used to put cardboard. I would plant my bed of carrots. And then put cardboard over the top or old pillowcases or something. And then I would just water those. And that would make sure that they would stay moist because carrots mm-hmm. can take three weeks. gonna should pop in a few days. And therefore, most people don't have problems with it. And it may be that there's something wrong with the seeds. But my guess is that I've I rarely in my career, 40 years, ever seen a batch of seeds a lot where they're all
0: dead. Right. Yeah. Cooked in
1: a UPS truck in Phoenix <laughs> over a weekend. Dark truck, 120 degrees outside. That'll do it. But other than that, I don't.
0: Yeah. And one of, my, one of my things that I do is put an old bed sheet down. So I'll plant out my garden, put an old bed sheet down, and go out and water that bed sheet every day. It acts as a top mulch. It keeps the birds away. And after a couple of weeks, the plants start popping up and they push up the bed sheet, that's when you know you to take it off. Yes. All right, so Alicia put in the in the chat how to do a germination test. Why don't you just say real quickly how to do a germination test?
1: Well, we would do is a 10 by 10 grid of seeds on a mm-hmm. wet paper towel. You know, about each seed about a half inch apart. So go 10 seeds across, 10 seeds up and fill it in. So we have 100 seeds. The reason we do that is that gets, makes it easy to count for your germination percentage. What you were trying to find is how many out of a hundred, and then that's your percent. And so you roll up the wet paper towel, keep it in a damp place at room temp, and, uh, and make sure there's enough air around it. Sometimes people put them in plastic bags. You don't want them to mold, but you want to keep them damp, as I was talking about. Before. Depending on the seed, within 24 hours to three weeks, they'll start to germinate, and then you unroll the paper and then count the seeds that have the little radicals,
0: or in most cases, just count the seeds that don't. That don't, exactly.
1: Right.
0: So that's a full on germination test if you're selling seeds or if you want to know a good percentage. I've just done 10 in the past. Right. Just put 10 and then you put them far apart enough on the paper towel yeah. that once they germinate, you can take them out and plant them. Exactly.
1: Or my, what my father used to do with
0: tomatoes for our
1: seed company was, I go, where's the germ test for all the tomatoes? And he goes, oh, it's they're coming. And I go, what do you mean they're coming? You've already planted all the flats of tomatoes for this year. And he goes, yeah, that's the germ test. (laughs) I plant 50 seeds of each in flats. I'm going to use the plants. And then I just count how many come up. So you can do it that way also. That's probably a more realistic test.
0: Yeah, exactly. So Bill...
1: Yeah. I just wanted to throw out that the paper towel, you can buy seed germination paper from a company called Anchor, and you can make sure that they look really good. There are rules for seed testing. You can type that in. You can get a copy of that. You have to become a member or pay the American Association of Seed Analysts to be able to Mm -hmm. get that. But make no mistake, that simple paper towel test is what will qualify as an official germ test to sell seeds in most states. If you're looking at doing that, then feel empowered.
0: Amen to that. Bill had put in the in the chat box for seedsave.org forward slash heritage grain alliance. Yeah. So if you're interested in the grains, you can check that out. Any final thoughts, Bill? Please try
1: one thing, yeah. one place. That's the most important thing you can do. I got to go to India this year to the ninth session of the governing body of the International Treaty on Plant Genetic Resources for Food and Agriculture. And I came out of there. There's some great people doing great work there on, the, on behalf of small farmers around the world. And they're getting organized. They've got their cell phones. and It's going to be a really interesting next 10 years as they wake up and go, no, we're not going to let you patent our stuff anymore it's ours yeah. and we need it we're going to start saving our own seeds again all over the world and they are it's it's this incredible thing but for all the other people that are there i'm not sure that just saving your own seeds at home isn't more important work than they're doing that was going through my head i think that nice. is the most important because it'll change everything if you haven't done this it will change you you'll understand this excitement this palpable yeah. excitement that we all have because it's abundance We're finally surrounded by abundance again. And as we teach in seed school, you're going to have a problem. There is a problem in it. And the problem is you will have too many seeds. Right. The system always does that to people. And then you're going to have to figure out, it's a problem, how to get rid of them. And so you can start a small seed company. We've had 13 of our students do that. Mm -hmm. their own seed companies. There are hundreds of seed libraries and seed exchanges now. Take them down to one of those and get rid of them. But we're building community and resilience back into our country. And that's got to be sound important to most people in this day and age. A real quick
0: funny carrot story. I had four ounces of carrots. How many seeds would you ex- expect there to be in four ounces of carrots, Bill? Oh, 100,000? 100, hundred. a couple hundred thousand. Couple okay. hundred thousand. Yeah. So I had this young man come and visit me at the urban farm about four years ago. And I asked him, Do you know how to plant carrots? He said, Oh, yeah, I got it covered. No problem. <laughs> he took that entire four ounces and planted all of them. The next year, I saved a five gallon bucket, five gallon bucket of seeds. Oh my god, those carrots! I had so many seeds. Yeah, that's
1: that. And yeah, um, getting into those elder, more elder years, and my friends like Will Bonsall and uh, Jeff McCormick. And the people that started some of the seed, the now famous seed enterprises way back in the late 70s, early 80s, and they all have a personal problem. They don't know what to do with all their seeds. Right. It becomes this burden after a while. And so fortunately now we've got, joseph lofthouse and land gardening so we've got a, a we've got a solution for how to do that so stay tuned to the next one of the next podcasts and we'll get joseph back on we'll do that his Ooh, whole thing again yeah, because that. that's even more fun now we're talking like we're going to slice through hundreds of thousands of varieties of grains that's the system i'm working on now with the CIMET in uh in mexico the center for wheat and maize is how to get They've got 300,000 varieties, I think, of wow. wheat. Yeah. And, wow. and it takes them 10 years through their normal processes to produce a new variety of wheat. They're working, they got a $10 million grant to work on new wheat that's drought and heat tolerant. Why? Because half the planet is becoming Plenty dry. Up. And they see that and they're going to need to do that. But they're going to come up with one variety in 10 years. And I was on a call and I said, you know what, folks, I don't think you have 10 years. I really don't believe the systems that will distribute industrial seeds will be around it. Either a container ship will get blocked on the Suez Canal again or something's going to happen, right? We yeah. know this is pretty fragile. So I said, why don't you send us tens of thousands of varieties? And they go, you don't have the infrastructure. to.' And I said, no, we're going to mix them all together and pass them out to a grassroots movement all over North America. And everybody everywhere will see what works. Just plant out thousands of varieties. Let, this is Joseph Lofthouse, land race garden. Let them all come up. Only save the seeds from the winners. And then the obvious question is, how do you know which varieties they are? And I love the answer. That's what universities are for. We'll take them back, let them identify it. But it doesn't matter. See, that's more of that industrial thinking. Who cares what variety it is? I have a grain that out of thousands that I've tried work for me in my backyard.
0: That's what we're talking about. So I'll end with that. Nice. Peggy says it's a great addiction. Donna said, says saving seeds is so much fun. Love it. Tammy says, grateful. I get inspiration each time she comes to the chats. And uh, Donna says, great chat. So appreciated. Thank you, Bill and Greg. Thank you all for showing up. Have fun. Thanks, Bill. Thanks, Greg. Take care, everybody.
1: We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org.